0: Good morning and welcome to Out of the Blue on Sunday 28th of May 2017. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial, or you can have a listen from our website, www.3cr.org.au forward slash Radio Blue, where you'll find a number of previously broadcast episodes that have been uploaded as podcasts. My name is Andrew Christie from Melbourne Polytechnic and Marine Care Point Cook and today's weather is partly cloudy with intermittent sunshine and we're heading for a top of 16 degrees and some rain around in the form of a few showers. Uh, at this time of year we often ha- get presented with northerlies and westerlies and often relatively calm uh, winds uh, the order of the day. They're the, the winds that prevail at this time of year and it's a very good time to be out and about in Port Phillip Bay because the conditions are often a hell of a lot calmer than you can sometimes find during the summer months but always wise to remember that things can turn around pretty quickly so uh, as always please take care if you're getting in or on our beautiful bay or waterways in the state of Victoria. Today I want to talk a little bit about the aquaculture industry in Victoria and I should point out that this is a pre-recorded segment as I'm going to be attending the Food Service Australia 2017 Australian Seafood Summit as this program goes to air and this should be a pretty interesting conference and I'll be sure to enlighten our listeners of any interesting developments that come from that. I'll be back after this brief announcement. Help 3 support the rights of Indigenous Australians means we save our culture and save our dreams, our footprints, dreams, our song line and keep our culture going strong. Of course, a lot of the Aboriginals, having been stolen, were put into state care and also others. The recognition were... of what our people have been through in the last 200 years, the recognition of our culture in the last 40,000 years and the recognition of where we are heading into the future. Welcome to uh, Survival Day, Invasion Day. 223 years ago, the white man landed on our shore. Subscribe to 3CR and help keep Indigenous voices on air. Call us on 941983. Double seven, or visit 3cr.org.au. Subscribe now. You are listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. Okay, I wanted to start off today by talking a little bit about Victoria's aquaculture industry and I'll talk a bit about what's happened in the past, what the industry actually consists of today and indeed what the future holds. There are some very interesting developments in the industry going on right now and I wanted to canvass a few of those today to give our listeners a bit of a feel for what the industry is all about. Now before I get into the nitty-gritty of the Victorian aquaculture industry, uh, what's needed from the outset I think is a pretty honest conversation about what we want to achieve in Victoria, in Australia, in, uh, throughout the world uh, with regards to seafood. Now, there are quite a few people in society that are quite happy to remind us that many of the world's oceans and inland waterways indeed are overfished, but when farming gets brought up as a possible alternative, uh, the idea can sometimes be dismissed as being environmentally damaging. Um, That is something that varies, of course, according to the production system and what people view as being sustainable seafood items, the items that they consider to be sustainably farmed, others that they might not be um, as happy with. Of course, at the end of the day, if you do want seafood, it's got to come from somewhere, whether it's wild capture, uh, wild capture fisheries that we're talking about, or indeed, whether it is aquaculture and farming. Now, there are obviously some that think we should all uh, convert to vegans. Um, That's probably not really realistic or necessary and probably isn't going to happen any time soon. But I often get asked the question, is aquaculture damaging to the environment? And I guess the thing there is my my answer is almost invariably, well, yes, it can be, um, but what are you comparing it to? I guess that's the key is relativity. Uh, Remember that every time you exhale, you're putting out greenhouse gas, uh, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Every time a a cow breaks wind or farts, you're getting methane up into the atmosphere as well. There are certain things that we just cannot get away from. They're always going to be there to an extent. Now, the the issue I just brought up, uh, gaseous emissions, from cows. Even today, I mean, there's a lot of research underway to try and come up with diets that enable the cow to excrete less methane. So, quite often, where there's a will, there's a way, and it's a matter of how we go about researching and developing uh, various topics in the agriculture and aquaculture industries, remembering, of course, that aquaculture is effectively a branch of the wider agriculture industry, and it essentially means the farming of aquatic animals and plants. And I don't think there can be much debate that surely the, the way forward is sustainable farming systems. Of course what you want is profitable enterprises, uh, they're not much good at the end of the day if they're not uh, a- adhering to the economic bottom line, they've got to be viable enterprises. And of course adherence to appropriate animal ethics. What you want to have ideally is what I sort of term the shotgun approach where you hit multiple targets with the one blast. And a lot of these things, uh, when we consider things like animal ethics and profitable enterprises and the sustainable farming systems that I just mentioned, a lot of these things in their essence are not mutually exclusive. For example, if you've got a situation where you've got a whole heap of fish in the sea cage and they're not happy um, that they're suffering from diseases and they're in cramped conditions and the stocking density is far too high, then you've got a situation where animal ethics is being breached. That's the last thing that the farmer wants or the, the aquaculture enterprise manager wants to see. Why? Not only from the animal ethics standpoint, but the fact is that he's not going to be getting very good food conversions. More often than not, his fish aren't going to be really all that interested in the feed. And if they're not feeding, they're not growing. And if they're not growing, then they're not going to be able to be sent to the market in a good enough size or condition. So you've got to be able to get on top of all these issues as an aquaculture enterprise and indeed as an aquaculture industry. To say it can't be done, I believe, is an absolute cop-out. If something isn't quite as nice or as peachy as we'd like it to be then of course the way forward is lots of research and importantly lots of development too. Um, That's where industries have sometimes been criticised in the past is people turn around and say well they're very, very good at the research but actually upscaling it to make it a commercial reality, in other words going down the development path is something that hasn't been done as much as some would like. When we talk about R&D research development there are many that believe there's an adequate amount of research done but not as much of the D, not 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 as much of the development that's really been followed through. One thing is for certain and we are at a crossroads now and something of a tipping point when it comes to the skyrocketing rates of obesity and indeed conditions like ADHD the attention deficit hyperactivity disorder in children and as well as things like exercise which are widely advised as being very, very important for a a good lifestyle and a good physique and all those sorts of things that we want to have. Of course, it's exposure to things like junk food and uh, you know it might be a chop and chip based red meat diet that starts to send people down this path. And the notion that you can keep many of these sorts of conditions at bay by having a high omega-3 fatty acid type diet, in other words, things like seafood, for example, is something that 's very near and dear to my uh, very near and dear to my heart um, i 've got to say, and i 've kind of been put in that position just as a, as a matter of chance. Um, I happen to suffer from a disease condition of my spine, a thing called ankylosing spondylitis, in a nutshell what it 's trying to do is fuse all of my vertebrae together, and one of the best things that I can possibly do apart from swimming and keeping up the exercise and the gym and all these sorts of things is to make sure that i 've got a, seaf- a diet that is relatively high in seafood and features lots and lots of omega-3 fatty acids. I've got to say from a personal viewpoint, since I went to a an international seafood conference that was luckily enough held in Melbourne back in about 2011, and the guy who was instrumental in setting that up and is now carrying through on the conference that I just mentioned earlier, that's happening in the Royal Exhibition Buildings uh, this Sunday, for any uh, today, for those of you that are interested, is Roy Palmer. Roy's a guy that I've had quite a bit to do with for a number of years now. Uh, lucky enough um, to know him in that sort of capacity, having crossed paths with him many, many times, and he's a very much a, a, revered, a revered person in the seafood industry. He's got some really excellent ideas on where the seafood industry can get to. So as soon as I I started switching to the high seafood diet and gobbling much more of the, uh, the fish oil capsules and all those sorts of things, I noticed a pretty prominent change in the way that I was feeling. Things like uh, the sacroiliac joint pain that I used to get hit with, that some of our listeners might be familiar with, really started to back off once I started going down this path. So it is absolutely something that I'm convinced we need to start doing more of. And of course, if we're going to have more seafood on the plates of, uh, of people throughout Australia, then we need to make sure that we're sourcing it from a very sustainable and appropriate avenue or avenues. Looking at the Australian situation for a moment, the most valuable commodity that we have in the aquaculture industry at present is Atlantic salmon, uh, Salmo Salar, for those interested in the scientific name side of things. Of course, what we've got there is an introduced species and At last count, the industry in Tasmania alone was edging up around the magical mark of $500 million a year, half a billion dollars a year of production. There are some staggering production tonnages and value in that industry. Uh, Some of our listeners might be aware that there has been an almighty blue erupting for quite some time now between Tassel and Huon Aquaculture, and they've got very different ideas on how farming should be conducted at various places around Tasmania. Macquarie Harbour on the west coast and some new ventures on the east coast have been spoken about at length and they actually featured as part of a program, um, some investigative journalism that aired recently on Four Corners on the ABC. So there is plenty of debate amongst the aquaculture community as to how we can best, and, uh, you know, best practices and incorporate sustainability into what we're doing we're sort of protected from that a little bit in victoria for the uh purely because sea cage aquaculture is the one industry in Victoria that we don't have. It's really conspicuous by its absence. Possibly as a partial result of that, a, a partial consequence of that, we've got what is effectively the second smallest industry in the country uh, at last count. Now we're just ahead of the Northern Territory with a value of around $24-25 So it is a bit of a minnow in Australian aquaculture terms. If we cross the creek and go uh, jump over Bass Strait and head to Tassie, we've got the largest and most prominent and lucrative aquaculture industry in the country at present in Tassie. If we go west we head to South Australia there's the second largest. So while we do have a fascinating and diverse industry it is dwarfed by our cousin's to the south and immediately to the west of us. Now, as far as the main breadwinners go, the trout industry uh, was the number one for many, many years. Rainbow trout, and then there there was also some culture with things like salmonids. And when I say salmonids, I mean the family that encompasses things like the rainbow trout and also Atlantic salmon. There are some real niche areas within the salmonid industry, and you have to look no further than out towards Thornton. We've got Yarra Valley Caviar and our students from Melbourne Polytechnic toured that enterprise back in um, just earlier this month to help out with the stripping of the Atlantic salmon. The reason that Yarra Valley Caviar are stripping their Atlantic salmon at the moment is because, as the name suggests, they're after the caviar. They're basically not bothering much with the filleting of fish anymore and providing those, uh, those fillets for the market despite the fact that Atlantic salmon is quite lucrative at, you know, uh, $24, $26, 28 $30 a kilo, people will happily pay for Atlantic salmon. But the caviar is a different, uh, different ball game altogether. You're looking at about $100 a kilo for that sort of produce coming from those fish. So it's quite an incredible industry that they've got there. A real niche market and people are prepared to part with an enormous amount of money for what people consider to be a real luxury seafood item and one that's quite prestigious. As I was mentioning before, with Atlantic salmon, when we look at rainbow trout, again, a bit of a controversial industry. Not all the, uh, the native fish people who enjoy catching native fish are very happy at seeing rainbow trout around. Um, however, it is the hub of a very uh, a very important industry, at last count the second most valuable in the state, and it's recently been overtaken in, in recent years by abalone aquaculture. Now, one of the things to remember about things like rainbow trout uh, aquaculture In some ways the Achilles heel of aquaculture is the use of fish meal and that's one thing that keeps coming up time and time again. It's something that we really need to try and get on top of. The issue with fish meal of course is that quite often, more often than not, it comes from wild capture fisheries. Sometimes those are harvested in quite a sustainable manner, other times they may not be. So that is certainly a burning issue in the aquaculture industry at the moment. There's plenty of research underway into replacement diets with things like for example soy Bean meal. Now I remember being at a conference in Adelaide uh, not all that long ago, and it was quite an awkward experience being at the conference and hearing about uh, you know looking at all these great products that were part of the trade show trade show section, and people were talking about these diets for yellow tail kingfish and the soya bean meal, and then immediately after going through the trade show, you sit down to the, some of the conference proceedings, and there was a research paper there being presented on what they were calling yellow tail kingfish uh, soya bean meal enteritis. In other words, the fish were eating the soybean meal prepared feed and ending up with the runs. They were getting diarrhoea effectively as a result of consuming the soybean meal. There are some people today saying that, well, we really shouldn't be trying to feed carnivorous fish soya bean meal. We should be giving them something else that's far more appropriate to their dietary needs and their nutrient profiles. The thing with it all is, of course, that you've got to try and get somewhere with this sort of stuff. You've got to try and get on top of it. You know, bottom line, at least they had a go. And that's an area where we have to watch this space and see how it turns out over time. Uh, Dr Giovanni Taccini from uh, Deakin Uni's Warrnambool campus will be presenting at the Seafood Summit. And it will be very, very interesting to hear what he has to say about things like Murray Cod uh, fish meal uh, replacement diets and all these sorts of things to keep our native fish ticking over. As I said, any real showstoppers there, I will present on Out of the Blue in coming weeks. Okay, let's go to a song to break it up a bit, and we've got one with a suitably aquatic theme today. Now, the Orinoco River is one of the largest rivers in the world, and by discharge volume, it sits at about fourth place on the list of the world's largest rivers. Now, if I say to you, Orinoco Flow, uh, some of our listeners will know immediately the song that I'm about to play, but maybe some of you might be scratching your heads a little bit. So here it is, uh, Orinoco Flow, in brackets. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial, and that was Enya with Orinoco Flow. Okay, as I was mentioning before that song, the trout industry in Victoria was the numero uno, the number one for uh, for a long, long time. And Goulburn River Trout out at Thornton is Victoria's and Australia's, for that matter, largest land-based trout farm. They've been churning out an enormous number of trout now for many, many years as part of a family-owned business. Things started getting pretty difficult for trout farmers a number of years ago now. It probably goes back to the early 2000s when we started getting a situation where the drought really kicked in. Some of our listeners might remember that pronounced El Nino effect where we had a situation where there wasn't much rainfall at all. When you lack the rainfall, uh, then what that means is the trout don't have as much water to swim in, basically. You get a situation where the concrete raceways, which are these great big structures where it's essentially flow through, uh, water flows in from the river goes through the trout farm and then flows back out again if those raceways don't have the amount of water in it, you don't get as much exchange in the water, you don't get as much dilution of things like ammonia and all those other things that the fish might be excreting as they start eating their high protein feeds and it's not a very good situation for anyone when the trout really start to struggle the temperatures start bumping much north of about 20 degrees and you've got a really difficult situation on your hands a lot of the trout farmers start start cutting out the feed, they stop, uh, stop feeding the fish at around 21 degrees plus, just because you've got a situation there where the animal is a cold water fish so it doesn't like temperatures much higher than about 16 degrees if you could sit 16 degrees year-round for trout that'd be reasonably reasonably happy it's when you get to the high teens low 20s and god forbid when you start getting up uh, above 22 23 degrees things can turn ugly pretty quickly. So with all the drought and all that sort of thing now, uh, happier times are here again for the trout farmers because they're getting a hell of a lot more rainfall than they did once upon a time. Anyway, along came the abalone industry and that really started to make significant inroads. The abalone industry is based on a similar uh, design in a sense in that it's flow-through. They're what we call coastal flow-through farms. So they're set up in situations like Ocean Wave Seafoods out at Lara, an enterprise that our aquaculture students from Melbourne Polytechnic have regularly toured in the past. And what those guys do is they pump water onto the farm, it flows through the farm, goes out into a settling uh, settling pond area, and then from there it gets discharged back to the ocean. Now, some people look at the flow-through elements and say, well, that's not ideal. You're pulling water from the river or you're pulling water from the sea and you're putting it through the farm, and then you're discharging it again. So you've got a, you've got a situation there where there might be a higher loading of nitrogen. Uh, you know what we call the nitrogenous waste products, things like ammonia or nitrites or nitrogen. My traits all gushing out back into uh, whether it be Port Phillip Bay or whether it be the Golden River or, or wherever. And that really came to a head when the abalone industry was getting so close to knocking off trout and then all of a sudden along came what we call AVG. Or abalone viral ganglioneuritis. Now, that's a herpes virus that started causing mass die offs of abalone at some farms in southwest Victoria and then started spreading not only to other rackle culture farms as it burnt its way east but also to the wild capture industry. And the Victorian Abalone Divers Association were absolutely up in arms about that and were pretty furious because they're saying, well, okay, you've got millions of litres of water flowing through these uh, coastal Abalone farms on a daily basis, being discharged. If they do get a virus like they did, then it spreads to the wild population and there's very little you can do about it. Now, what they were, what they were saying was that, well, we should disinfect All of that water, but of course when you're talking many millions of litres of water, that's much easier said than done. For a long time it was assumed that the virus had exploded in an aquaculture farm and then been discharged and then it uh, occurred amongst the wild capture area. And one thing that people were terrified about was the fact that it might jump uh, Bass Strait, it might jump over from, uh, from Victorian waters into Tasmanian waters and start threatening the industry there as well. And that was very much the assumption that was doing the rounds for a considerable length of time. But then something incredible happened. What we ended up finding out, and it was Paul Hardy-Smith from Pan Aquatic Health Solutions, amongst others, who really researched this thing quite closely, and ended up finding out that the virus had been endemic to parts of Tasmania all along. So it was this funny novel virus that suddenly exploded and had a catastrophic effect on the abalone population in the wild, and also um, went, you know, very close to, uh, to smashing some of the Abalone farms and they were having to do complete culls of all their stock and then basically start again, which you can imagine is going to be very, very difficult economically. But all along it appears that it was endemic to Tassie. So quite one of those things where we're never really quite sure of what uh, what caused the eruption to occur in the first place, what the actual origins of it were. It's still something that's shrouded in quite a bit of mystery. So it's one of those difficult ones that we have to try and find the smoking gun for eventually. Anyway, we shall continue this discussion another time. For our listeners out there that are interested in what recirculating aquaculture systems look like and want to know a bit more about the aquaculture industry, please feel free to contact Melbourne Polytechnic and we're more than happy to show people around the Aquaculture Training and Applied Research Centre at our repping campus if you're in the area. Till next time, enjoy your Sunday and stay tuned for Out of the Pan with Sally.